Changes are on the way for training Part 135 flight crews coming up, why they're needed, and what they entail. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Pete Combs with your trusted source for business aviation news. The way Part 135 air crews train is about to change in one of the most significant revisions in charter operator training we've seen in years. Specifically, the new advisory circular and inspector guidance change, expected to be published later this year, creates a standardized approach to charter operator training at Part 142 simulator facilities. At the time FAA undertook this effort, then-Administrator Michael Huerta pointed out the rules for on-demand operators in Part 142 training centers were written at different times, in different eras, and as a result, simply didn't mesh very well. The new guidance calls for the development of what FAA calls consensus-based simulator training programs for Part 135 operators. Joining me now to talk about these changes and how they might impact NBAA members who fly Part 135 missions, Ashley Smith, President and Director of Operations at Jet Logistics, and Steve Hall, who's the Director of Regulatory Affairs at Flight Safety International. Ashley says the move towards simulator standardization has been a long time coming. Well, for as long as I've been in the business period, Pete, there's been a, an industry-wide uh, gap in standardization and knowledge amongst both the FAA, the training centers, and 135 operators. It's like everybody had a different way of doing this. And the one thing that was, was consistent was the inconsistency of how different FISDOs, different inspectors within the FISDOs, how they approached it, operators approached it differently. FISDOs were not happy, the training centers were not happy, the operators were not happy. The one thing that the FAA kept trying to push was for operators to take control and take ownership of their training program. That was always the case, and it's still the case, even after this change that's been put into place. Operators still have to be to take ownership of it, but the, the concept here was how can we get everybody on the same page? How can we all be singing from the same sheet of music and try to have some consistency from coast to coast and everybody be able to see the target and hit the target. That, that's what I think sparked the change. And, uh, and that, that's where, where I, I think, we've, I think we're, we're going to reach the goal. And it was the consistency issue that was the key, right? It, it was the key. It was the inconsistency that, that drove the, the whole project from the very start. And the goal here is to, to end up with standardization. You know, hence the term standardized curriculum. The idea is to make the process standard, no matter who the operator is, no matter who the training center is, no matter which FISDO you're working with, there will be a process that is very well defined and it should make it easy for everybody to be able to follow that process because it's, it's clearly defined and, and clearly delineated as far as what each person's role is that they are to play, who's responsible for what, et cetera, et cetera. Steve Hall at Flight Safety, what are the specific issues that led to this move towards standardized simulator training for Part 135 operators? The issues are everything from uh, check airmen that are authorized to conduct a check for a specific operator to a mountain of paperwork required to uh, prove that check airman's uh, qualified or the curriculum is uh, qualified or the simulator is qualified. Um, so there's a paperwork issue, there's a resource issue, 
And then there's the, uh, the, the issue of uh, curriculums that uh, are non-standard. So we, uh, we have four walls here and an instructor. Um, when you have four walls and an instructor, you want to train a class and put people in it. Uh, and in order to do that, they all have to have the same curriculum. If they don't have the same curriculum, if they deviate quite a bit, you can't really sit in the same classroom together. And so you can imagine that a limited amount of resources uh, with, with which we have, which every 142 training provider has, would limit the ability for different operators to train if their programs are varied, and they do vary. So that's the, the genesis behind uh, why uh, this industry suggested we change things. How did this end up sort of playing out on the ground? I mean, were you, were you finding uh, uh, POIs were rejecting uh, uh, the, um, uh, the applications of some of these 135 operations? Oh, yeah. So, so yes, in some cases, uh, a POI would reject a candidate um, where that was working for other 135 operators. Um, and in some cases, they would just simply only uh, be allowed to give two candidates, let's say two TCEs per program, where we, uh, on the 142 side of the house, training 91 clients, would have, let's say, anywhere between 10 and 20 TCEs that could do the same job. Um, so, so the 135 operators were being biased to some degree by the paperwork that the POI actually had to do um, to qualify more than a few instructors, uh, examiners, I'm sorry. And that is a, a, was a lot of paperwork, so I can see their point. Uh, the bottom, bottom line is this new way of going, uh, uh, conducting business will remove the paperwork requirements that have been encumbering these POIs. Tell me initially how this, this new way will, will sort of ease this burden a little bit on, on both the uh, 135 operators and on the training operations. It's going to do a lot of things. Uh, uh, it'll enhance training and checking. Um, it'll leverage data and expertise. We're going to get feedback. Part of this standardized curriculum concept is to provide data back into the system so that the curriculum can be updated annually or, or earlier as needed. Um, it'll also streamline the approval process incredibly. Um, today, it's, that's the biggest pain right now is to get the approval process, uh, to get a program, uh, including the examiners and the SIMS, through the approval process for every operator. And any little change that happens uh, has to re-enter uh, re that system. Uh, it'll provide administrative efficiencies. Uh, there'll be training transfers that are available today between operators. Um, and it'll enhance safety, we believe. The one thing I would like to point out, though, is that although the, the process will be standardized and, as Steve said, the paperwork will actually be reduced, the FAA's goal is not to remove the responsibility of all those things from the operator. Now, there will be a very standardized process, but the operators still have to be very, very clear. They are still ultimately responsible for their training program to ensure that that standardized program is delivered. They are still responsible. They're not, they're not allowed to delegate that responsibility to the training center or to anybody else. It's still the responsibility of the operator. It's just going to make it easier because now those materials will be, you'll have easier access to check airman information. Somebody else will be watching it. And, and Steve may know a little bit more about the details of, of how that is actually going to work than I am, but uh, I do know that the, the, the intent here on behalf of the FA is to not remove the operator from the process, but instead to make it easier for the operator to be a part, be the central part of the process more so than it was before. The problem that we had before was that the training centers really kind of drove the bus. I mean, at the end of the day, they really were the decision makers now 
it's going to make the operators, uh, it's going to make it easier for them to be able to see every step of the process, see what's going on, and make it easier for them to supervise and oversee the training program. Because again, in theory, everybody's on the same page. So the operator will still have to make sure that everybody is paying attention that, to that same page. One last point, if there are things that are different about an operator's training program or operation as a whole, you are still responsible to make sure that you train those differences. That when you're, you're you, you can't tell a pilot uh, that, you know, go, to, go down here to, to you know, XYZ training facility and when you come back, you get to go fly. It's not, it's still not quite that simple. You're, they're going to get a standardized training program on the aircraft, but there still may be things about your operation that are different, unique, and you need to make sure that they still get that training internally or however else that you do that. It should be part of your training program. It should be pr approved by your POI and you're responsible to get that done. The standardized training curriculum applies to aircraft specific subjects only does not apply to anything that is operator specific, only the aircraft. So, so to give you the regulation references, it would be 135, 293, A2 and 3, as well as B. Those are the only subject matters that we're talking about with the standardized curriculum. Steve, tell me a little about implementation of this rule. How will it play out in the real world of SIM training? The recommendation that the ARC made and the FAA has accepted and they're, they're, they're finishing up um, has us going through a new system, a system that will require a training standardization board be set up. Uh, this board will then have uh, many meetings dependent on an aircraft or based on an aircraft type. Those meetings will include the FAA, an OEM, an operator, and a training provider who will decide what the best footprint would be for a training program for that aircraft type. Once that's done, the TSB will produce the what they call the S standardized uh, curriculum for that particular aircraft variant. That 142 training provider will then create a curriculum that will work in that regard, get it approved by their TCPM and add it to their training specifications. So now it has an FAA stamp of approval. At that point, a part 135 operator may decide to use that curriculum. And if they do, they take it, they review it, they do an assessment to make sure that their operation fits this curriculum. Uh, for example, this is a standard curriculum that will deal with an aircraft platform if they do something like gravel runway training or departures or something special, they'll have to add a block to it. But this core curriculum will work for the aircraft type. So they'll take that, they'll do an assessment of it, they'll come up with a gap analysis or a differences. If there's any differences they may need to add. And then they'll take it to their POI who will then validate and approve that curriculum by just looking at the fact that it was approved by the 142 training provider. The operator did a gap analysis on it, and then the POI then makes the decision that it does fit the needs of that particular operator. So they won't have to go in and look at that curriculum in detail because it's already been approved by the FAA. When that curriculum comes, with it come all the examiners that were qualified to the standards of that curriculum that the training provider has. So it's, it's a pretty big boon. The FAA you know, sees and acknowledges that there was a vast inconsistency between POIs and how they were approaching training programs and the approval of such. And that's one thing that's very important to note here. A training program is something the FAA approves. A, a general operations manual is something that's accepted. And, and those two terms are vastly different when, in the eyes of the FAA. If they accept something, uh, that means that you can put pretty much anything in front of them that you want to. And unless they can find a, a reason that that general operations manual does not comply with the regulation, 
or is contrary to guidance, they pretty much have to accept it. An example being, if you put in your general operations manual that your pilots are going to wear a green shirt and purple pants, well, there's no regulation that says that you can't do that, so they have to accept it. They may think it's ugly and they think you have a horrible fashion sense, but they can't refuse to accept your GOM as a result of that. A training program is an accepted document, so the FAA reads it and has to accept it, and it becomes incumbent upon the operator to make sure that that training program meets every single requirement because now the bar is significantly higher. They're approving it as opposed to accepting it. That's where we run into problems in the past with POIs because of the higher bar of approval versus acceptance. You had some some POIs that were were approving things that had a relatively you know, lax training program, for lack of a better way to put it, and you had other POIs that were that were setting the bar unbelievably high, making some operators do initial training, even on pilots that that they they walked in the door current qualified in that particular make and model of aircraft. So I think the the goal of the FAA was to level that playing field to to make it so that if the training program is blessed by the by the training standards board, which is going to have FAA oversight from the DC level, that you know now the POIs pretty much have to accept it uh, or approve it because it's 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 been blessed by a much higher authority than at the POI level. My gut tells me that POIs will accept that because to some degree it's it's taken some of the the responsibility off of the POIs. My only concern about it is whether or not POIs will now start to push that for that reason because they don't want to have to take responsibility for somebody who wants to do their own training program. And by the way, that's still going to be allowed. Steve, let's talk about the rollout of these new training guidelines. So there's an AC that's been uh, put out for uh, uh, review and comment, and that comment period has ended. Uh, the FAA, AFS 280, has taken those comments and is reviewing those now, and they'd like to they've, they've actually finished their review of those comments, and it's, it's going up the chain within the FAA through the OMB and, and every other office it needs to. Once um, it's gone through the legal and all the offices required within the FAA, um, it'll come back out as, a, as an, an AC that's published for the public consumption. Uh, once that happens, the TSBs will have to stand up and we'll start ticking these programs off one at a time. Once uh, a program is, has, has had its training standardization board meeting, then uh, the curriculum's uh, standard can be put out and a training provider will grab that, create a curriculum to it, submit it for approval to the TCPM and we'll be knocking these off as those go along. As when the last one's done of, of the existing types today, this will, the TSB will continue on an annual basis to review these curriculums or meet at the independent or at the uh, aircraft type level uh, via conference call, via meetings and make sure that every year ADs, Things from the field, data that's been fed back into the curriculum or incorporated into the curriculum, and then the 142 training providers will re revise these curriculums as we go. So it will take a little while to get all these curriculums uh, in place once this AC is out, but once they are in place, it's really going to be a pretty exciting system to keep all the curriculums up to date. The reason it's coming out as an AC is because that's the document the FAA can get out the fastest. The next step after that, eventually FAA will put, put guidance into FSIMs that will mirror what's in the advisory circular and and that should be the end of the end of the approval process in the meantime like steve said once the advisory circular is out and the tsbs start getting stood up i would highly encourage operators if you operate a make and model of aircraft 
that they're standing a TSB up for, if you do not volunteer and try to get involved in the development of that curriculum, you got no right to complain about what comes out of it. You need to be involved because everybody is approaching this. There'll be, there'll be representatives from the 142 community, guaranteed. There may be representatives from the FA that will be, be involved. There needs to be industry representation because we're all approaching this from a slightly different angle. It will be, my guess is that, you know, it'll be on a volunteer basis. People will have to cover their own expenses to participate in any face-to-face meetings. But I think operators are going to want to be involved in that process so that there's some yin to the yang. Stay in touch with your representatives from NATA. Stay in touch with your representatives from MBAA. John McGraw with NATA. Brian Kester is a representative for MBAA. They both will, will be knowledgeable about what's going on with the TSB and they can help get people involved. One of the safety benefits to these new training guidelines, they facilitate an ongoing discussion about the effectiveness of simulator training courses, complete with input from the Aviation Safety Information Analysis and Sharing Program. This process has already been the focus of a couple of dry runs, and both Hall and Smith say they went pretty smoothly and sparked a lot of good feedback. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan podcasts at Apple's iTunes website or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Pete Combs. Thanks for listening to Flight Plan.